You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, tonight, I have a very special guest. I've really been looking forward to uh, getting her on the show and having a chance to talk. And uh, uh, her, she goes by Cloud, and she is from Cloudberry Exotic Sanctuary. And we're going to talk about a little bit of a different angle than we've normally covered on the show. We're going to talk about the rescue and rehabilitation of, well, herbs in general, but specifically amphibian species. Cloud has a lot of experience dealing with uh, unwanted or injured or special needs frogs that either need to be rehomed or need some rehab and whatnot. And it's a, I guess it's for me, at least it's somewhat of a relatively new phenomenon because, you know, years ago it was very, very rare to have anyone rehome a frog outside of maybe a friend or whatnot might have an animal and say, hey, look, can you take this off my hands? But uh, apparently the need for this type of work has increased, I guess, as the hobby has become more popular and, you know, you have more frogs, you have more frogs that are going to need some special attention. So we're going to cover all that and a lot more. But first of all, uh, I want to make a quick correction. Uh, last week, I gave a shout out to a uh, reviewer who left a nice five-star review. Um, it was a bunch of letters, but afterwards I spoke to him and it, it was Anthony. Um, Anthony, I wanted to give you a thanks by name. Uh, we actually spoke after I had recorded that episode, so I couldn't go back and change it. But uh, you, wrote, you wrote me that really, really stellar review, and uh, I just wanted to give you a shout out by name. So thank you very much. Um, you know, that's 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 it. Um, great way to support the show, of course. Five-star review. Uh, thanks to everybody who's left nice reviews. Another great way to support the show, if you want to support the show in a uh, by becoming a patron, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You'll find the link in the link tree. I have tiers as low as a dollar a month if you want to just do something simple. And I have the more popular tier, which is $5 a month. Get your shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And, of course, I have the links to uh, the merch store if you want to buy some T-shirts, stickers, things like that. I have all sorts of stuff, socks, tank tops, everything you could pretty much be interested in. And uh, if you want to get 10% off a purchase of In-Situ Ecosystems, check out the link. Uh, you'll get a 10% off your purchase just for being a listener. And a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. And you'll also find a link to support Panamanian frog conservation in the bottom of it. So, like I said, one link in the link tree to take you to everything you need to for the podcast. I will now stop talking because <laughs> I've taken up enough time. But, um, Cloud, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know it's been a long time since we've... Uh, uh, well, I know we've been trying to get together and have some time to talk, but I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me tonight. How are you? Oh, absolutely. I am so happy to be able to finally sit down and have a good chat with you. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. We've been looking for we've been looking forward to this for some time and um I'm glad we finally made it happen. So, um your work is a little bit different than what we normally talk about on the show and I want to cover as much of it as you you want to get into because I mean like I said in the introduction, it's kind of like for me, I understand that the people have needs, they have to give up a frog or they might not have it the experience to be able to handle one, but it wasn't the demand. Like when I was younger, it was more like unwanted cats and dogs and maybe rabbits yeah. and ferrets and things like that. And it's obviously the, the exotics hobby has progressed to the point where people like you are helping out people who can't manage on, on their own. So I'm curious if you'd like to tell us about how the whole Cloudberry Exotic Sanctuary started out and like, why did you choose to kind of specialize in amphibian and, and reptile rescue and rehabilitation? So when I first started, um, I was pretty young. I was uh, just on my way out of high school and there's a local pet store that we had where a lot of people were calling in with animals that they had either found locally or had found injured on the road and they weren't able to take them in. 
And I had previously done some work with uh, taking in rescues for small mammals. And at one point I had been asked to take in a group of firebelly toads back when you could find them pretty much everywhere. Um, and they had been surrendered in pretty terrible condition and I had been able to take them home. And after that, I said, I'm not going to do small animals anymore. And I really think that I found a calling because there just wasn't anybody who knew anything about them at the time. I mean, this was, this was before you could even have a detailed Wikipedia page, let alone getting a full encyclopedia on one of these creatures and how to take care of them. And I had a lot of success caring for those guys, and it kind of blossomed into what it is today. Do you think that a lot of these animals had originally gone to, like, wildlife rehab places, and maybe they weren't really equipped to handle with them, handle them either? So I currently uh, no longer hold a wildlife permit, but at least where we are, there are only two people in the entire state that actually cover herps at all, let alone amphibians. So there's basically nobody out there to do it. Interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things where I will see occasionally people will, like I have, um, what is it, like the Ring app, and people will post community things. And every so often something will come up, like, has anyone lost a turtle or whatnot? And then there's one place out here. It's a sanctuary that specializes spe uh, specifically with turtles. But yeah. they're very, very, I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I know that they have a very, very high caseload. Like, they won't even take radiated sliders anymore because it's just so overwhelming for, for, for them. But uh, did you have any experience with, with wildlife rehab? I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but what was that all about? So so I had a, like, a junior uh, rehab situation through my local vet where I was able to assist him in um, relays for rehabilitation. And I decided um, once I moved out of state and moved back that I wasn't going to renew that just because the restrictions on you are much more difficult. And I tended to work more with exotic species anyway. So it would only give me three more species than I was already working with, with a lot of restrictions. So I just decided to go more towards the exotic pet route because there are just so much need to help them. And I, as much as I love wildlife, um, doing wildlife rehab really is working a lot with people, surprisingly. Yeah. I, I understand that wildlife rehab is a real big process. I, one, one of my, my colleagues, a for, uh, former guest on the show, it was a uh, Brianne Ross. She thinks she was on episode, I think it was two or three um, I know she and I were discussing wildlife rehab because it was something that she was interested in doing. And it's it's a tremendous amount of work to be able to get the certification to do wildlife rehab. And like you said, there's different tiers and there's certain species. I mean, I don't know what state you're in, but here in New York, it's it's very, very strict in terms of like what you can care for. And then, you know, fur bearing mammals is a whole other thing because of the rabies issue. And right. Yeah. It, it's. I mean, do you think that it's there's less hurdles to jump through since you're dealing with the exotic pet end? Like since you don't have to deal with like... I guess like DEC or, or whatever governing body would have to deal with, with the wildlife. So my, my main reason for choosing exotics is one, there's more need for it Two, you know, you're going to have somebody knows somebody who has a snake or a frog or a turtle. Um, but as far as wildlife rehab goes, you actually would have to work over 200 hours with a certified veterinarian or another rehabilitator just to get certified for that first permit. Um, there's just a lot of going through other people instead of being able to be self-sufficient that led me towards 
you know, having a bit more freedom, being able to choose what species I work with, not having to ask somebody else for permission to work with a species, that kind of thing. Well, I think you made the right choice, man. I would have done the same thing myself. I just, you know, so much red tape out there can make it, uh, make it difficult when you're trying to do something like this. Exactly. And I would love to pursue that again at some point, but I think at least for now, especially with how booming the exotics hobby has become, it's just the right move. So what are some of the services that you offer at the sanctuary? Like what's, if someone was curious, like what, you know, what would happen once an animal was, was surrendered or whatever, but like what, what exactly does Cloudberry Exotics do? So I would say first and foremost, education is one of my top priorities. Um, my immediate goal is to have somebody equipped on day one to do things correctly instead of having to go through all of the beginner hurdles and mistakes that people usually go through and cost usually a life, you know? How do you go about reaching out to people in terms of education? Like, um, do you go to expos and, and talk to people? Do you offer like online consultation? Like what, how do you accomplish that? I would say about two thirds of my clients come from online and then another third are people who have reached out to me locally or either have had a friend um, suggest that they contact me. Um, most of the time I would say it's surrenders and rehomes, but I get quite a lot of educational consults, you know, people not knowing how to start, not knowing what you know, there's a sea of information. And at this point, there's a lot of misinformation for people to sift through. So they don't really know where to start. Does social media facilitate that as well? I mean, do you get people reaching out because of, um, I mean, like, I, I know we're both on Instagram, but I don't know if you're on Facebook, whatever, but do you get people reach out through social media? Like they might find a post and then look to you for confirmation of whether the information on that first post is correct or, or incorrect? Oh, absolutely. A lot of my messages are either care consult questions, um, double checking other people's posts, or just asking an opinion for, you know, how does my frog look or how does this enclosure look? Anything I should change? What are some of the resources that you use to maintain your operation? And I know you mentioned like a lot of your experience with, with, with veterinarians and whatnot, but how do you go about maintaining it? Like, um, I mean, do you have like a library of books? Do you follow different publications, like vet consultations and getting funding? Like what's the nuts and bolts of the operation? Like how do you, how do you start it and then keep it going? So a lot of this is just me and my own personal finances, to be completely honest. Um, I do access a lot of veterinary materials online. Um, one of my favorite resources that I also recommend to people just looking to learn more into the medical side of rehabilitation is the MSD Veterinary Manual. Um, it's actually available as an app on the App Store, and I find that extremely helpful just to go through and refresh. Um, and I do have uh, quite a few friends who are vet techs that go through all kinds of processes with me. We're always giving each other different opinions. Do you ever feel like amphibian medicine is still kind of in its infancy, meaning there's so many things that are becoming issues. Like now that people are keeping amphibians like by the thousands in captivity, mm -hmm. we're seeing more medical problems because there's just more frogs out there. Like right. On the vet end of it, do you think that veterinary medicine is, is keeping up where there has to be more to be done? 
I think that there's a lot more to be done. I'm seeing a lot of the same go-to methods used to treat reptiles being used for amphibians. And a lot of the time they just don't work. Agreed. It's like when you, to be, I mean, this is going to maybe just me kind of going off on a little tangent, but I kind of don't like when oh, people please, use. Go ahead. <laughs> I kind of don't like when people use reptiles and amphibians in the same sentence because no. they're so markedly so different. different. I mean, realistically, from a veterinary point of view, most reptiles are more similar to birds than they are to amphibians. And yeah. I feel like you're right. Like that approach towards amphibians, kind of lumping them together with reptiles. I mean, I just like, I mean, like dart frogs and tree frogs. They're so markedly different from a bearded dragon or a red-eared slider. Like, how do you, you know what I mean? How do you lump the two in to the same, you know, in, into the same type of caseload? It just seems like it's, uh, I don't know. Just it seems like it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Never did. And and I feel like the same goes veterinarian wise as it does in the hobby, where you know you find some people who can tell you the ins and outs of dart frogs, but general frog things is just not their thing. I feel like at least in exotic vet med, even if you're an exotic vet, the times that you're going to see a reptile or amphibian are so low compared to other ones, they really just get a general view of it, where a lot of times breeders and hobbyists get that hands-on experience that you wouldn't see outside of reading a textbook in veterinary med. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think that one of the things that I've, I've found going through this whole down this whole rabbit hole is I, I think that one of the reasons why we have a better understanding of I mean, comparatively, better understanding of dart frogs as opposed to other frog species is because the dart frogs in the hobby, a lot of these came in through zoological institutions and places like that. So they weren't, in in the beginning, they really weren't that easy to keep. And as health issues popped up, I think they were solved in a more methodical kind of objective way than a lot of the frogs that kind of made it like washed into the bigger pet trade. Oh, I would absolutely agree. Yeah. It just seems like a lot of the people who were really influential in the development of the dart frog hobby were also, many of them were also scientists or they worked in zoos or they had some formal training or some resources that a lot of people just, you know, outside of that environment didn't have, which I think might have helped exactly. with that. So what are some common reasons why a person might surrender a frog? Can you Can you give us some examples? It's actually changed quite a bit over the last five to 10 years, I would say. Originally, it would be um, people just finding the difficulty of their care to be too much. Or one of the most common reasons is uh, somebody who has to do a lot of travel and they're afraid that they're not going to be able to continue that day-to-day maintenance required. Um, But as time has gone on, uh, living near a college town, I'm finding a lot of oh, I saw this on TikTok and I thought it was cute. And then they realize it needs a lot more care than they were led on to believe. Do you think that, I mean, we can touch more on that too, because I, I, that's, that's a whole other shebang, but. Oh yeah, can of worms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think that since, since frogs are more available now to the general public and they have more of a, like more of a physical presence because of social media, I mean, anyone could put a, I mean, I put a YouTube, I made a YouTube video of just my phylobates terribilis and it, you know, it didn't get a million views. It got like 500 views. I'm like, like, my God, like that, that was like nothing. Right. So people can post videos and the whole world can see it and the whole world becomes enamored with it. Do you think that that's a problem that that's contributing to an overabundance of unwanted frogs? 
I actually very strongly believe this, um, especially after the pandemic, the amount of frogs that I was taking in to help or rehome from even 2018 compared to 2020 is about a 200% increase. That's wild. And you think a lot of that can be attributed to people making impulse purchases? I've had at least five different intakes that were specifically, I saw this online, I thought it was cute, and now I can't handle it. It's genuinely become a like concern of mine and something that I strongly advocate towards, especially being somebody with frogs on social media, to kind of let people know, yes, these guys are fantastic, they're awesome, they're funny, they're hilarious to watch, and they require a lot of care. Where do you think people go wrong? when deciding to purchase a frog? They just don't think about it at all? Or do you think there's any particular commonalities that make people fail to be able to handle it? I think it's a combination of not knowing the in-depth level of care that's required for their heating or their lighting or their food, for example. But people just lump them in with other small pets and think that it's something that you can kind of just set and do tiny maintenance with like a hamster or a mouse or they see the display tank without realizing that it has UVB and heating connected and they just are ready to have a new pet without really looking in depth, which of course is an issue in itself, but you know what I mean. Is it, I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to, stuff like this always just makes, arouses my curiosity, like like the dynamics of this, but I mean, is it, is it like younger people who might be not prepared is is it like older people i mean is it run the gambit like is there a certain dynamic that more people are less likely to do this because i feel like um i feel like tiktok kind of caters more to like a younger generation and like i mean i have kids in that generation so i know how influential that stuff can be i mean are you seeing like a gambit here or is there like any kind of patterns in terms of like an age group or a certain um you know a certain uh i guess dynamic of people that are that are surrendering frogs so I would say generally, not to, you know, over uh, generalize people here, but I would say most of the time, um, older folks tend to rehome for reasons like not being able to lift the tank to do maintenance or not being able to keep up with cleaning, um, that kind of thing. And then I would say younger college students are the brunt of um, like impulse purchases or needing to rehome or sometimes even getting caught with a frog in their dorm when they know that they're not supposed to have one. Yeah. I'm always just curious because I, I just, I think about where you need to put your resources. You know what I mean? Like if there's a need in a particular situation, like you want to make sure that that information goes to the right people. Like when I go to, like when I go to expos, I'll see like a lot of like parents and kids and like, look, I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. I go, I go with my kids and I feel like it's easier to, when you have like everybody there, but I mean, it's interesting about the whole college student thing. I guess like that would be, I guess that would be definitely an audience that you'd want to reach out to and, you know, provide as much information as possible to, if that's, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I never, I never even thought about that. Like having a, a frog in your dorm and having it become a problem. I mean, it seems like something that I would have, I would have done, but (laughs) But, um, I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. I I never, I never would have even thought about that. Like people sneaking frogs into college dorms. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the nice thing, though, is that, you know, I have never really come across a student that's either asked for help or a rehome that hasn't also been really receptive to. So that's been a really nice thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's so easy to paint people with a negative brush when in reality, these are people that just need help. You know what I mean? Yeah, like and, that, just, yeah. and that's why I do this is to make sure that when you're starting, you're starting right instead of having to call me. What are some of the more common species that get surrendered? Is like, is there a, I know white tree frogs are really, really oh, popular. Yep. That was going to be the first one okay. I said. All right. <laughs> uh, so I would say white tree frogs, uh, chubby frogs and tomato frogs are also becoming quite prevalent. Um, and gray tree frogs. So those are native frogs to most of the United States. With the gray tree frog to that, just like people, I mean, like when I used to go on frog forum, which really isn't active too much anymore, a lot of people posted about finding different species of native tree frog, like gray tree frogs, American green frog, Amer- American green tree frogs. Yep. And it was like, just you know, hey, it's cool, just leave them be. They're, they're not, they're, they don't need help, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of people do well-meaning, quote unquote, at-home rehabs that end up leaving them unable to survive in the wild. So a lot of times I'll get a call from, you know, a mom who is exasperated because she let her 10 year old take in a frog and she didn't realize it needed to eat bugs. And now it's too late for him to go back outside. So that kind of thing where they've been keeping them for a year or two and they're non-releasable and they can't find anybody who will take it. That's got to be one of the hardest issues to deal with, right? Is dealing with like a gray tree frog or something. I would say um, most of the time, the more difficult ones are when I have too many of one species. So right now I have 14 whites, and I think if I take in any more, I'm going to have to start holding an adoption event. I mean, can you can you give us like an idea of how many frogs you ha- like can handle? Because like I know in like my own collection, I mean, I, I've taken in other people's animals here and there. I, I don't like to be like overly vocal about it because then I'll have everybody, everybody knocking at my door, but like, what's the carrying capacity? How many individual frogs do you feel comfortable handling? So right now, if I were to include my invertebrate enclosures, I have 54 enclosures in the house to give you kind of a rough example. And that's how many of those are frogs? So I would say I've got about 60 to 70 frogs, usually goes up uh, during springtime, baby season. A lot of people need help with the babies. Um, I've got about 20 geckos, 15 snakes, a chameleon, a couple rabbits, a couple cats, and a couple fish tanks. Do you have uh, any like personal animals in there as well, or they're all candidates for so, rehoming? So most of the animals here uh, permanently live here. Uh, the only time I usually rehab and rehome is if it's large numbers of animals that I already have, like the white tree frogs. Um, I try and keep a minimal amount of each species. If it's a species I don't currently have, I usually keep them. And rehomes uh, for animals that I normally don't keep due to size restrictions, uh, bearded dragons, uromastics, I will rehome as soon as they're ready to be cleared for health reasons. Do you have any dart frogs was going to be my next question. I don't because I eat way too much fruit as much as I love them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I, I saw, and this is one of those things that always like strikes fear into our, our, our uh, minds. But around this time of year, I start seeing like fruit flies that actually legit fly. 
and all it takes is one to get down there and cause trouble and then I'll have all flyers. So I, I, I see what you mean. Not want to have to deal with that <laughs> with like so fruit flies I, everywhere. Yeah. I can't blame me on that. I, I had a single aratus adult that I had ended up, uh, bringing to a new home. Unfortunately, I had opened my fruit fly culture and unbeknownst to me, it had gotten into my dubia roach colony. And that was that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, no more dart frogs for us, but thank you. (laughs) Um, do you ever have anybody who has a large collection? Like that's another dynamic that I've always been curious about is people who have a fairly, by like a large collection, I would say anything over say five individual frogs. Do you ever have that issue where you have people who say, Hey, listen, I, I, my life situation changed. I can't keep them anymore. Have you ever had like a really large intake of like more than like five or 10 individual animals? Yes. Um, last year I had somebody reach out with 22 individual frogs, which I was able to help out with most of, and then find relay homes for the rest. That usually is something that I try and do very seldomly, or at least try and help them to find different places to bring the animals. Just because as much as I would love to help, there's only so many slots that I have. Yeah, I can imagine. Do do you have help at all? Like, do you have I don't know how you work, how you work it. If you have like friends or if you have volunteers or how do you, how do you manage all this? You do it all by yourself or do you have help? So I run completely out of home. Um, I also work from home, which makes it quite a bit easier. And then my husband helps out when he gets home from work, whenever he gets a chance. And I also have a wonderful friend named Liz who does transportation for the sanctuary for me. So we usually go and get the creatures that need help and go collect them together. It's got to be a lot of work to manage alone. I mean, how many hours a week are you putting into this with, you know, enclosure maintenance and feeding and everything? You know, I would, I would have to say at least 60, probably 80 hours a week. Yeah. Sounds, sounds right to me. I mean, I'm not even doing half of what you're doing and I'm still spending like 20, 30 hours a week, but I'm also kind of obsessive, but. Yeah, I would I would consider myself the same way. I recently um, upgraded my Mist King, which has definitely helped cut down on the maintenance. Yeah, the Mist King is great. I mean, I only have like four enclosures that are on the Mist King, but it's so much easier than hand misting. And like once you get everything dialed in the way you want it, it's just it's it's perfect. It's, it just makes life so much easier. Yep, set it and forget it. Yeah. As far as sick animals, I mean. It's one thing to get an animal that's healthy and good condition, like, hey, listen, for whatever reason. And, and the other thing, I just, I, I want to just clarify to everybody out there, like, look, this is like real life. Stuff happens. You know, you can't, people make a, a decision on the, you know, on the spur of the moment. People have life-changing events. People get old. Stuff, I mean, stuff happens. It's not like, it's not anybody's fault. You know what I mean? I'm not, I don't want to imply that anybody's doing anything negative, but, um, I mean, have you ever gotten cases where there's like really, really like severe neglect that's like obvious? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, one of the leopard geckos that we currently have in our care, his name is Lenny. He's an absolute sweetheart. Um, He was surrendered by a girl who was friends with me at the time. And um, when I took in the gecko was when we stopped being friends, when I saw how he had been treated. Um, I would say the largest majority of illness that I see is metabolic bone disease, which I'm sure your listeners know quite well. 
And um, sometimes it can be a matter of somebody being depressed. Sometimes it can be a matter of somebody not caring. And unfortunately, it is something that I see pretty often. And you have to kind of take it with composure and take it case by case. Yeah, I understand. I mean, there's a really strong human element to this as well. It's like um, we all have reasons for doing this. You know what I mean? Like we all have our reasons for keeping animals. And like some of us, like, like you and I are, very, 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 very committed to it, but you can't expect everybody to, you know, hold it up to the same value. You just, you just, you can't, you know what I mean? People have, people are different. People have different, you know, they, people have their own lives and not everybody's going to yep. be up to the task. And that's specifically why I do this too, because I don't think that somebody should have to suffer in silence or potentially have their animal suffer with them. I, I tell people every time I do a rehome or an intake that I am 100% judgment free and that is a guarantee. Um, things happen and, you know, you can't expect life to be perfect, but you shouldn't expect to just suffer in silence and not be able to ask for help. And I think there is a lot of judgment in the community and people are pretty rude when somebody needs to rehome their pet. But I think at the end of the day, if somebody is out there asking for help, they're doing what they can for their animal. And sometimes the best thing can be going to somebody else. What would you say to someone who came to you and said, look, I'm really, really ashamed. I have a couple of frogs. I just, I can't do it. I, you know, like, what would you say to that person? Because obviously, like you said, people have a hard time admitting when they're having a difficult time for whatever reasons, like, what would you say to that person to make that person feel better about do, about doing a surrender? Like, let's just let's just say that person wanted to surrender but didn't want to surrender. Like, how would you convince that person that it was the right thing to do? So, one of the biggest things that I explain is not necessarily treating your reptile or your pet as a hobby, but if you're waking up every morning and instead of feeling excited to go open their enclosure and give them food or, you know, happy to go put some new decorations in. If you're waking up and you're dreading the thought of having to maintain your pet, then it's not bringing either of you joy anymore. If it becomes to the point where you wake up and having that pet in your life is no longer bringing you joy or them joy, then maybe it's time to consider another option. Doesn't necessarily mean immediately, okay, we need to send them to a new home, but even if it can be as little as giving somebody a different regimen to suit their work schedule, sometimes people get overworked and they lose track of maintenance and it can cost them. It can be as simple as, you know, I know things can be really tough, but the only thing that we can expect of ourselves is to do the best that we can. And sometimes that means asking for help too. Well, that's good advice. I feel like a lot of people are reluctant to ask for help, I guess, just out of fear of that. You know, so people are so afraid of being wrong. And I feel like it's not, it's not wrong to admit that you might need to pursue another option. You know, and I feel like a lot of people just don't want to admit that. So they keep an animal out of like almost like out of pride like well you know I, I know i can do it i know i can do it and in reality it's just not the best thing for for either party and i see that quite a bit um where you know somebody will be ashamed to reach out and they'll have a friend reach out on their behalf because they're worried about being judged and i think a lot of it comes from people thinking that whoever's going to help them is going to be secretly judging them the whole time no that's a good that's a good point i mean you know, hey, look, there are times where I don't want to admit that I'm wrong about something, but sometimes you just have to, you know, 
You just have to do it. I always say the only bad keepers are the ones that refuse to acknowledge that there's room for improvement. Everybody can be doing their best and do a little bit better. That's a very, that's, that's a great point. I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, I'm curious. Let's just say that, I mean, I mentioned it before, but like, let's just say that you have an animal that's come in really, really sick and we'll, we'll forget the circumstances behind it, but how do you go about rehabilitating that animal if it needs a substantial amount of veterinary care like if an animal had just been um like advanced metabolic bone disease or um i'm trying to think of of other like like nutrition and husbandry problems that would kind of end badly but um something like that or like a frog comes in that's like really like emaciated like how do you how do you approach that how do you go about getting the animal treatment so i'm very lucky in that about 90% of cases I can treat at home. Um, the only time I really need to call the vet is if it's something involving x-ray, surgery, or antibiotics that I can't get myself. Um, most of the time I do injections and syringe feeding at home. I just check in with the vet. Um, I'm very lucky to work with a fantastic team. Um, Dr. Bob is great and he basically pops in, gives me the medicine, we send it back home and I recheck when he's ready. How long do you think it took you to get comfortable doing a lot of this stuff? Because I know some people like, like I assist feed one of my frogs. It's just the way he is. I've had, I've mentioned this like a million times. I have a Brazilian horn, horn frog, Ceratophis arita, that is just. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like that frog's a nightmare, but like, I mean, it took me a long time over the course of like, you know, decades of doing this to get kind of confident and familiar with things. Like how long did it take you before you felt really comfortable doing a lot of these things like, um, well, for example, like if you had to do an assist feed or do a soak in like a honey bath, like how, how long did it take you to get comfortable with all that? Not very long as far as, you know, honey baths or assist feeds, but I would actually say the hardest thing to adjust to would be losing the frogs. Yeah, I could see that. That took me several years. Um, but most of the medical maintenance, I'm lucky that I have rabbits, which if you breathe near them, they want to die. So a lot of oral medication given on those guys has helped me practice for the frogs. Really? Rabbits are that? I, I, I have never, I had a rabbit once like 15 years ago, but I didn't realize that they were that fragile. So rabbits essentially, a little tangent here, rabbits essentially have to eat constantly. If anything, uh, disrupts their digestive system, they can get something called gastrointestinal stasis, where everything stops and everything in their stomach kind of starts to rot. And rabbits are so good at hiding any sickness that they often will just go into a corner by the time the owner realizes that something is wrong, it can be too late. So immediate treatment is required. And that's usually a lot of fluids, a lot of pineapple juice, and a lot of meds. That's interesting. I, I never knew that. I guess that would explain why rabbits are so popular. I mean, I, I know a lot of regular vets that will see rabbits. I wonder if that's why. You think that might be a, like a reason since rabbits are so, I mean, I, I had no idea rabbits are so fragile. That might be why um, even non-exotic vets see them so often. Yeah. And rabbits are the third surrendered after dogs and cats in any shelter. Really? I guess a lot of that has to do with the same kind of just you know, they're cute when they're Delicate small. And, yeah, yeah. And then it's 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 work, you know. I mean, while we're talking about work, if you're putting obviously you're putting a lot of time in this, but like what's an average day like for you? Like from I don't know if you take have like a schedule, like I don't know if you'd like to do like 
uh, dedicate like part of the day to doing, you know, giving people advice another part to your husbandry. Like what's, what's an average, like how do you manage your time is basically what I'm asking. So I'm lucky that I have a lot of my actual tank maintenance set up automatic. Um, I do keep most of the tanks bioactive, which helps with cleanup quite a bit. Um, but I would say I wake up in the morning, I check the enclosures that are in the bedroom. Um, if I can count, we've got, I want to say 14 tanks in here. So I do my rounds in the bedroom and I usually alternate every other day. So on Tuesday, for example, I'll be cleaning the frog tanks. On Wednesday, I do a loop and clean the lizard tanks. Thursday, the snakes get fed and so on and so forth to kind of take the brunt of doing everything all at once and separate that out a little bit. Yeah, I do that too. Like I usually, I, I use like the snakes I usually feed on the weekend in part because I like to thaw the rats out like during the, I like to let them thaw out at room temperature Yep, and I don't like to leave them out while I go to work, so <laughs> I, like to do, I like to do that while I'm at home because otherwise it could be, um, you know, a little awkward for anybody who goes downstairs while I'm at work and finds, I mean, a, you know, a couple of frozen rats and and mice out on the counter. But now yeah, they they've seen it before. Um, <laughs> that's 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 my routine. I like to do that, and like I like to, I usually like to soak the snakes like every Thursday. I don't know why I pick Thursday, yep. but it just kind of jived into my routine. That's funny you mentioned that because Thursday is when the skinks get their bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You started with blue tongue skinks, you said, right? We talked about that a little bit off air. How did uh, how did they come into your possession? Oh, the blue tongue skinks are actually our most recent intakes. I have a lovely male named Ziggy who was surrendered by an older couple. And then I have a little lady skink named Noodle who was surrendered by a lovely lady this spring. And what are your, what are your plans? I mean, they're healthy. You're just kind of holding on to them until the right person comes along, or you're gonna you're gonna work with them a little bit. So Ziggy, thankfully, was a rehome uh, from a lovely older couple who just didn't have the time or resources to take care of him in, anymore. She was just getting a lot of back pain trying to clean out his enclosure and keeping up with the maintenance. Um, Noodle, unfortunately. Um, was rehomed out of his original owner's home, and the person she sent him to uh, neglected the skink pretty badly. Um, so she is very stunted. She's about the size of a six-month-old blue skink and blue tongue skink, pardon me. Uh, but she's four years old, so she has quite a severe case of metabolic bone disease, and she also has a broken and healed spot on her spine. So she is going to stay here for a very long time. Yeah, so it sounds like she's had a bit of a rough bit of a rough time. Yeah, and that's something that I'm seeing pretty commonly, especially when people are adopting animals as babies. Um, just that supplementation is the first thing that I try and get people really accustomed to. Um, I'm seeing more and more keepers that are happily opting for UVB when they start, but not knowing how to adjust um, supplement intake when they're giving UVB, which has become a new problem as UVBs become more popular. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I mean, if I, I look back in time really before UV lighting was as sophisticated as today, mm -hmm. the calcium with vitamin D3 was meant to offset the lack of UV lighting. And then both of these things kind of evolved side by side. And then no one ever kind of really came out and said, well, you really can't use both at the same time to excess because then it'll cause all sorts of health problems. Yep. So I'm always leery of people like, I mean, even myself, I'm always leery of like overdoing it, but 
I mean, the metabolic bone disease thing, is that one of the more common health issues that you're seeing on intakes? Number one most common. Why do you think that is? You think it's just people don't quite understand what, well, like what's involved with basic husbandry and nutrition? Or like, what do you think the causes are? I would say it's a combination of basic information not being given when somebody adopts an animal combined with not doing research. So, I mean, I know people will look at me like I'm googly-eyed if I start talking about a calcium to phosphorus ratio, but at least being able to tell people if you're going to start out from day one, get the calcium with the D3, use that, and we can explain the whole supplement thing later when you're more accustomed to doing the basic things. We can step it up in a little bit. That's a good rationale. I mean, I think that's a great way to break it down for people is to just, you know, start off simple and meet the, um, you know, meet the basic needs first and then work your way up. I guess you think that people get intimidated by like everything that, like, like, let's just say that you go out and you really don't have much of an idea of what you're going into. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Like I'll go, um, I don't know, say I go to like an aquarium store and I'm looking at a particular species of fish and I see it in an established tank. I'm like, all right, this is going to be easy. And then I find out later that there's so much involved and I get overwhelmed. You think that that could be a, a deterrent for people as well is that, that, people inherently really want to do the good want to do the right thing and when they find out what's actually involved it can kind of be a little bit of a little bit of a shock oh i would absolutely agree i think you know people go into the hobby looking for some information and like myself you know we're always willing to help i'm sure if anybody messaged you with a question that you could answer you would be happy to answer and i think that people just get so much information given to them at once. And especially in the age of social media, there is an expectation to already know these things. And people get nervous to even ask because a lot of the time the response can be, well, you should already know this. How did you not know this already? Yeah, I hate that. I don't like, people ask me questions. I'll say, look, if I don't know, I don't know. You know, I, I don't like to make stuff up or just like, you know, I, I, I try to be pretty humble about my approach to this because look, you know, I'm, I'm no more of an expert than anybody else, but I hear you when you're talking about that whole, like, you know, people get, people can become keyboard warriors. And I feel like it's really, it's really easy to bring someone down and shame someone. And it's another thing entirely to try and bring that person up. So yeah, that's, that's, that's another thing that always, always bothered me too, was just how, People can be, you know, if, if people can be a little rough online. Yeah, and I get that people can be well-meaning. You know, it, it's just kind of gives me a chuckle when everybody's suddenly a frog expert in every video. <laughs> yeah, that that's a whole other show right there. <laughs> that's a I'll whole... table that one for next time. Yeah, that's that's we we might we might lose focus if I if I go down that road, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of experts out there, a lot of experts. So, well, one other thing I'm I'm also curious about is people. I think that people often assume, and this is another thing that I see on like social media and just just you know the internet in general. Like people, I think oftentimes assume that there's always going to be a sanctuary. There's always going to be a safe, there's always going to be some place for their animals to go when they're no, they're no longer able to keep them. And I'm concerned about that mentality because I feel like a lot of sanctuaries are, I mean, very, very small private 
people who really volunteer all their time and their own money towards mm-hmm. it. And I feel like that mentality is a great way to overwhelm a lot of these entities. Do you think that people rely too much on the idea that there's always going to be a sanctuary there to take their unwanted animals and that's maybe puts too much pressure? To be blunt, yes. Um, honestly, we're already mostly at capacity. Anyone that I really know that works with rescues, I mean, in the last two years alone, it, we're doing this by ourselves. And I think people do expect, oh, if I can't, somebody else can. And that's great. And I feel like a lot of people treat, especially reptile rescues, as they would a humane society when it's really just a couple people trying to do something good. Yeah, I, I agree. I just, I hate to see people go into something. I mean, look, it's, it's one thing, to, you know, to get into a hobby, like you get into like woodworking or working on cars or whatever. Like, all right, you know, you can sell your tools. You can you can put everything in the garage and not touch it for years. But when you're keeping frogs, well, let me give an animals in general, but especially frogs, there really isn't a margin for error. And it's not like you can just assume that someone's going to want to take a frog off your hand immediately and be able to have the resources to take care of it. You know, it's just, it's just one of those things that kind of concerns me. A lot of times I have to tell people, you know, before they even think about getting a frog, you know, are, are you ever going to go away for a weekend is one of the biggest questions I ask. And they're like, of course, everybody goes away for a weekend. Sometimes I'm like, you have to have somebody who knows exactly what they're doing during that weekend, or you might come home and not have a frog anymore. Yeah, that's my biggest fear. That's, I mean, I have no life anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, that's I, why I live at home with a frog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we're not, we're not like big travel people for a number of reasons, but you know what, it's, it's kind of funny because keeping all the frogs was, was a good way to not, you know, go absolutely berserk because now I got something to do while we're not, you know what I mean? Like when you're not doing anything, mm-hmm. you need something, to, you need something to do while you're not doing anything. And I feel like the frogs really fill that void pretty well. Oh, absolutely. If someone wanted to find good information about frogs and frog husbandry and you wanted to refer them to a source, like what are some good sources of, of, of um, amphibian information that you would recommend someone go to first before pulling the trigger and actually getting a live frog or, or other amphibian? So I would say first and foremost, uh, as a polite suggestion, stay away from Facebook groups. Um, a lot of times people are hobbyists, just like everybody else who are trying their best. And a lot of times the information that gets shared can be detrimental to your frog. I would say reach out to the people who produce them. Uh, one of the biggest people that I uh, admire in the frog community is Mike Matson. Uh, he runs Frogs Direct out of Southern California. And he's been producing these guys for 20 plus years. And he knows the tips and tricks to keep them thriving and keep them happy. So I'm sure if anybody's interested in buying a frog from a small producer, message them. Ask if you have any questions. I'm sure 90% of us would be willing to answer any questions that somebody has, even if it's you know a couple things that somebody would learn down the road or they're curious about what does this particular species need compared to another one. Asking the people who deal with them day in and day out can sometimes be your best resource. Do you ever think that there should be more scientific papers and journal articles available to the average person that's a little bit more, um, 
I guess, consumable for the average person. Cause like, I mean, I'll find a paper online and I'll sit down to read it and I get halfway through and I'm like, all right, there's too much math involved here. I can't quite yep. get to it. But do you think that there could be more, um, more, more research and whatnot available to people to base husbandry on? Absolutely. I feel like there's just not enough in the scientific community being centered around amphibians. Uh, luckily for you actually just jogged my memory. There's a wonderful company called Reptifiles that does specific care sheets for all kinds of different species of frogs, toads, reptiles, you name it. Um, and that's another resource that I point people towards quite a bit to have, you know, something consumable, something that you're not reading 80 pages to have to get through to figure out what temperature to get your frog at. Now, that's a good point. I just feel like there's so much out there and then like you try to condense it and there's just like, it's, it's hard to find. I think that's really what it is. Like when I'll do research you, for a topic. You have to know what to look for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. And people ask me like, well, how did you get this scientist on? I'm like, it, it took me months, man. Like <laughs> it, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to find people. And I, out of the people that I find, you know, probably like nine out of 10 are, are willing to talk to me. But it can be it can be like outright like really really difficult trying to find you know and, and anything besides chytrid is yep is almost like, like if you're looking for like something about like corneal lipidosis or um, I'm trying to think I'm of, actually glad that you mentioned that that's a case that I've taken in recently and oh, it's becoming more pre- pre- uh, prevalent I, my goodness I can't talk today no you know what tell us about it because it's one of those things that I see is happening more and more but there isn't a lot in the in the medical literature about it. Tell us about it. What's it like dealing with that? So one of the most common times that I tend to see corneal lipidosis um, is in tomato frogs. A lot of the time they will be kept below their normal temperature range while being fed a high fat diet. Um, Something about this causes these little pockets to form under their skin. I'm totally using scientific language here. (laughs) And uh, combining that low temp with high fat causes them to like retain these excess little calcium pockets under their skin, um, especially in the eyes and around the cheek and the jaw area. There's not a ton out literature wise, um, but it can compound metabolic bone disease if left untreated. It's funny how you think about something that is, realistically, it's probably a function of like bad it's just it's bad husbandry like you have to wonder like does this even exist in wild frog populations it's like in the snake world people who have obese snakes like i I was yep yeah like i was listening to um dylan perrin had a guest on his show the animals at home podcast it was it was a while back maybe like six or eight months ago by now but the um the guest he had on had a like a large constrictor i think it was a burmese python and it died abruptly at a like a relatively young age, and he he did a necropsy, and it was it was obese. It was just loaded with with fat, so it's almost like we're kind of like like we're, we're like we're overdoing it sometimes with with uh, improper diet and improper husbandry. I would say most white tree frogs and most African bullfrogs that I see are obese. Do you ever get the white tree frogs that are like so obese that they have like the 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 ear flaps are like you know, like fold it over. Like, have you ever seen frogs that are like, like that overweight? Very much. Um, a lot of times they're fed almost exclusively a diet of superworms, which I'm sure, as you know, are pretty high in fat. I never really understood how people are able to get, cause I've, 
I mean, I feed pretty generously. I feed a, I mean, my, my staple for my tree frogs is, well, I, well really only the, 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 uh, the whites is, uh, is dubia roaches is pretty much as yep. a staple, but I've never had a frog that was like morbidly obese to the point where it looked like it was just going to explode. I mean, I, I just, like, how much are people feeding them to be able to get them like that morbidly overweight? Most of the time I see people feeding adults the same schedule or the same amount that they would be feeding a juvenile. And it just turns into power feeding. Um, same as people giving their cat an unlimited bowl of food. They're going to eat it. They're going to get full. Their stomach will expand. They're going to continue that cycle. And then they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and then unfortunately for frogs, um, especially tree frogs, the bigger they get, as you can imagine, the less they're going to move around and the less they move around, the bigger they're going to get. So it just becomes this triangle that compounds in itself. Yeah, I just, I don't, I never understand how people do that because I'm looking online on these pictures. I'm like, this frog looks terrible. I'm like, how did they, how much, how much is this frog possibly eating? Because like I'll feed, I mean, I'll feed, I, I don't feed on, the, on a schedule per se, but my white street frog is a smaller male maybe maybe two or three dubias a week like maybe one every other day or so like not like nothing crazy but i mean he'll he'll kind of like stop at some point you know what i mean like he'll he'll eat his dubia and then he won't go for another one later but i don't know i'm just i'm trying to like get the logistics of how much these people are actually feeding these things to get them that big so usually if people aren't sure on the amount to feed, if they're under a year old for the frog, I always tell people to feed as much as they'll eat within 15 minutes. And a lot of species, um, especially whites, will do what I jokingly call the I'm full dance. And they will literally look like they're dancing to Shakira to adjust their food into their stomach. When you see them trying to wiggle their stomach to make more room, that means they're full of roaches and done eating for the day. <laughs> That's a good observation. That's that's I. That's a very good observation. I like that. As ter- in terms of the dubia colony, um, I know a lot of people aren't necessarily comfortable with it. It, it we've had ours for um, probably going on almost th- almost twelve years now. I'd say. Do you think that that helps? in the long term, like having like a steady diet of dubia roaches and maintaining your own colony as opposed to like having to constantly buy crickets or, or other feeders? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for cost alone, I always recommend people getting dubia, maybe not necessarily making their own colony, but even just having dubia are so much easier to keep than keeping crickets on hand that I recommend them to pretty much everybody I talk to. They're that perfect size too, where it's like just, it's, you get that dubia that's like maybe like an inch, inch and a quarter long, and it's just bigger than like the, the like the big size crickets. Like it's just bigger than the white yep. crickets. Yeah, it's just it's like the the best feeder. I just hate when they they like fall into the substrate and then they just disappear. I keep my dubia bioactive, and the maintenance that has gone down is just astounding. Pick up a piece of cork bark, call it a day. Do you use anything else like like um like dermistid beetles? Nope. Um, I used to have a small colony of dermis beetles, but I ended up just switching over to just keeping the dubia by themselves. Yeah, I've had mine going for so long. I what I usually do is during the coldest week, like the coldest week of the year, in like February or January here, I'll just take the whole tank outside and I'll just get rid of 
all the frass and all like the shells and husks and everything like that. And then, you know, like whatever's in the bag, if there's like nymphs in there, you know, they'll freeze overnight. But yep. it's just, I, it's interesting. I, I, I'd like to think of a better way to kind of maintain them because, you know, it's not the most, um, it stinks sometimes, you know, but not like bad, like oh, yeah. kind of like, like, like earthy kind of like fruity smell. Yeah. You walk into the room and it almost smells crispy. Yeah, crispy. crispy. <laughs> the crispy critters. So what do you think the future holds for the amphibian hobby? Do you think that the popularity is going to be good for it or bad for it? Like by that, I mean, as as more people start keeping frogs, do you think that the demand for rescue organizations like yourself is going to be difficult to meet? Or do you think that it's going to evolve in a way that people are going to be more responsible and have access to better quality husbandry information yes (laughs) both um i think that there's already been a huge increase in demand i've seen it especially you know over 2020 to 2021 just the amount of people needing that access for help but i also think that with so many more people entering the hobby we're seeing so many improvements and advancements that basic care is not really seen as basic anymore. People are wanting to take quite a few steps up from day one, which is really nice. In a perfect world, what would you like to see in the next, like, say, five years? I mean, would you be happier if you didn't need to work with, like, like would you be happy if um, there were no need for, like, rehab frogs or, or for surrenders or like, what's your five-year plan? Like, where would you personally like to see the hobby go? At least for me, I would like to see better access for beginners. I think a lot of people, just no questions asked, will sell somebody an animal, buy an animal. And it's just not necessarily that I want more restrictions placed on how you can get an animal or having you know, the government involved with the Lacey Act and all of that kind of thing. But I think just making sure that people have, like, I don't adopt out any animal before I have video proof of an enclosure and a list of what supplies they have for that animal. I think that, especially in the case of adoption, that people should err on the side of caution. And I think that's happening more and more where people are looking into somebody's husbandry before they're willing to adopt. Do you think that people have a an idea of the overall cost of maintaining a $15, $20 frog at an expo and then realizing that it's going to take, you know, anywhere up to like a couple hundred dollars to be able to maintain it. Like, do you think that that attitude should, should change as well? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of deterrent to people can be cost. Like I've had to explain to people that if you're interested in a chameleon, your most basic setup is probably going to be five to $600. And then they immediately don't want the chameleon anymore. I think that, you know, getting people started off with, yes, you actually do need this. And especially um, enclosure minimum sizes. I don't think that any, at least arboreal frog should really be in anything smaller than an 18, 18, 24. Some people think that smaller is okay, but that's just my personal opinion. And I'm finding that larger enclosure sizes are becoming more and more common. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because we almost get these ideas in our head of like what automatically constitutes like a good tank size. And I, it, it seems to be like whatever you can fit in your car. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you, when you go to, 
I don't know, say like, um, I mean, like local reptile store or, or like, like, dare I say it, like one of the big box pet stores, you know what I mean? It's like, they only sell tanks that are big enough that you could physically like get out of the store. Whereas like my custom stuff, I, I can't fit that in my car. You know what I mean? Like my big PVC snake enclosures, like there, there's no way. Right. You know? But that also like that ups the price point. So it's like, if I explain to someone the amount of, you know, the, the, the overall cost of like getting a good quality radiant heat panel and a thermostat and all that stuff. Like, like people ask me about like, well, how do I keep my frog warm? Warm. I'm like, well, before that, you got to get a good thermostat because it doesn't do any yep. good unless you, you know, you, you can control it. And that's actually the number one thing that I see people not having when they start out is running their heat elements without a thermostat. Have you ever got any frogs that came in with, um, with like thermal burns? Yes. Really? How did it, I'm just curious, like, just give me, like, how did it happen? Like a heat, like a heat panel that was, um, like just off the thermostat or like any like defective heat panel? Like what, what happened? I've, I've seen everything from an unregulated under tank heater, completely drying out a frog enclosure overnight to overhead lamps. Um, you know, you can turn them on and set it and forget it for a leopard gecko for the last 20 years. So people will do that with a frog, not realizing that the lamp might be on, but the hot side is at 97 degrees. So a lot of times people are drying out the tops of their frogs back. And then as they go to enter their water bowl, the rest of them is getting cooled down and moisturized, but that back is still staying dry. So they get this large crusted burn on their back. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you typically see that more in like, like Pac-Man frogs or you see it in tree frogs as well? I would say most commonly in terrestrial frogs, uh, Pac-Man frogs, pixies, ones that really don't have the brain cells to jump onto a tree to get away from it or dunk themselves underwater. Do you have a preference for your tank setups? Like what are you using for, for lighting and heating and substrate? So I am a bit of a snob and I use Arcadia UVB pretty much exclusively. Um, I do bioactive tanks with leaf litter, uh, drainage layer, that kind of thing. Um, and I do use mostly exoterra tanks in the animal room. I have to send you a link. To, I'm going to be doing an episode on, on milk frogs. I have to send you the, the, uh, the paper in advance though. It's pretty cool. You'd appreciate it because it talks a oh, lot yes, about, please do. yeah, it talks a lot about just like supplemental lighting and the tank setup and whatnot. And it actually places a very, very high premium on using like quality, you know, quality stuff. I mean, obviously you could do it in a big Rubbermaid bin, but, um, they, they, place a lot of emphasis on you know cleanliness and like quality 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 lighting and they they actually use uvb lighting for their um milk frog uh, project but um yeah i gotta send you the link so anybody who's listening stay stay tuned it's not it's not coming next week but it'll be coming out at some point but um sorry i didn't mean to go on to that little <laughs> that little, little oh, sidebar no, please but, do yeah i'll send it to you and like if if you were to i hate to say make like a starter kit but Let's just say that we'll, we'll start with like white tree frogs. Like, let's just say that you wanted to recommend a, and I, I hate starter kit, but like you wanted to give someone a material list. Let's just say, listen, you're interested in getting a white tree frog, go get this. What would be on your list for that person? Okay. Um, number one, a thermostat. I usually recommend BN Link thermostats on Amazon. They're usually around $18.99. So any price point, you can afford it. Um, I also tell people, 
try to go front opening if you can, but if space is your biggest concern, bang for buck, um, 40 gallon aquariums or 20 gallon longs for most terrestrial species. And I will always recommend both a multivitamin and a calcium supplement to alternate with each feeding. What about, um, like diet? Like how would you want to direct someone in terms of like a, like a diet for, again, we'll, we'll say white street frogs. What would you, what okay. would you recommend? So I tell people to stay away from mealworms. Um, usually dubia roaches as a staple. Um, black soldier fly larvae are one of my absolute favorite feeders to recommend to people. Um, as they start to pupate and turn black, they're super high in calcium and are great to feed to your pet. They actually don't have to be dusted because they contain the perfect ratio of calcium to phosphorus. Do you have a, like a size preference with those? Because I give the really, really small ones to some of my um, some of my phyllobates. My tinks, my tinks won't take them. They don't like them, but the phyllobates will. Do you recommend a certain size, like the extra larges or the smalls? Or I almost always just order the larges, and that works from babies to adults for most species that I have. Obviously, if you're doing dart frogs, you'd want to go much smaller with their mouths. Yeah, they. It's funny because like my I have tinks that are like the size of golf balls. And they, oh my gosh! The, the biggest thing they'll the biggest thing they'll eat is Heidi eye. I have weird I have weird frogs, and I know, I know you guys are listening and probably like, oh my my frog takes you know, everyone's frogs are different. I I got some weird frogs, and some of them are really some of them are really picky. My phyllobates will eat like you could you could probably put like a full size grasshopper in there, and they would take it out. I mean, they wouldn't be able to eat it, but I mean, they at least try. Yeah, they at least try. <laughs> Whereas like my 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 tanks. It's all my Patricias for some reason. My Patricias, like I could give them, you know, even like a, like a really small black soldier fly larva, and they'll pick it up and they'll spit it right out. I don't know if they, they produce a little bit of silk. I don't know if they just find that unpalatable. They're just a little too big. I, I have no idea. But that's other than that. That's everything else will eat them. So I'm curious: is there any species that you haven't worked with yet that you would personally be interested in working with, either personally or as a surrender? Hmm, that's actually a pretty good question. I actually would like to work more with salamanders. Um, I see them more infrequently than, you know, frogs or toads or even other reptiles. Do you ever deal with axolotls at all? Um, I have in the past, but I tend to take more terrestrial over aquatics at this point. I absolutely love them, but my house gets a little bit too warm to keep them very happy. Yeah, I'm always curious about axolotls because they've kind of become a bit of a trendy pet now, and I'm always concerned that you know people are getting them that might not necessarily be able to handle them. Because I mean, by and large, they're really really simple, but it's still a fair amount of work, like like with water changes and whatnot. And that's one of those things that I'm always concerned about is like like since axolotls showed up on Minecraft. Yep. I'm and always... they just released frogs too. Be careful. <laughs> uh, great. Well, they have dart frogs on the Sims. I know that because my youngest daughter made a house and put Oh, don't get me back playing the Sims. Come yeah. on. <laughs> I, I don't play it, but they do. And actually I'm sorry, it was both my daughters. They both built houses and they wanted me to come look at them and, and they wanted me to pick which house was my favorite. So I'm not <laughs> actually I, I'm not actually going to pick. But I picked the one. But I picked the one that had the frogs in it anyway. So I don't know. But I'm I'm always worried that whenever something comes out that's 
really, really popular that it's going to draw a lot of impulse purchase people to it. And then that's going to ultimately be bad for it. I, mean, I don't know how, how you feel about that, but like if I see a, a particular species of animal kind of go viral, so to speak, then I know that yep. there's going to be a lot of interest in it that really shouldn't be. And then it can be pretty, pretty bad because then you're going to deal with a lot of unwanted animals. You're going to deal with a lot of people that are trying to get get them out there to make a profit. And it's just, I don't know. It's, I always believe that, I hate to use the word, the term gatekeeping, but like, like price, like price point, price point should be a means of keeping people who are serious in the hobby. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And people who are not serious out, because if you can't afford it, then you're not, you know what I mean? Like there's a reason that there aren't millions of people driving around in Maseratis is because they just, they, they can't afford it. You know what I mean? But it's, it's easy to get a five, six, seven, eight dollar frog. And, and that's the thing is I tell people, you know, this initial cost might not be a lot, but are you willing to keep bugs in your house for the next 10 years? Are you going to be able to keep yourself stocked if it's the day before a holiday and you go to that pet store and there's absolutely no crickets? Are you going to be able to go on vacation or, you know, some people will get one frog and then within the next six months they'll have 10 to 15 and suddenly they're like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. My electric bill. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. It's almost like they don't, you don't own them. They own you after a while. Oh, very much so. I mean, I wake up and the first thing that I do is go to check on one of the animals. Yeah, I do that too. I that's the first thing I do when I come home. <laughs> it's like oh, running right downstairs, and I look. I know a lot of people listening do the same thing. I, that's we're all kind of that's our comfort zone. But I couldn't imagine coming home. Like I freak out if I can't figure out like you know if, if I don't get to see them. Like if I come home from work and I got to run out, I'm like I, I I gotta like hey look I gotta go I gotta go check on the frogs make sure they're okay. Yep. Well. Cloud, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you, but I wanted to give you a chance to just make um, any information, like if people wanted to um, find out more information about the best way to surrender an animal or um, if they you know, wanted to reach out to the sanctuary to get some advice from you, like w- what resources would you recommend people look for if they wanted to find out more about what we're talking about? Absolutely. Um, so I always tell people my website is cloudberryexotics.com. If anybody has any questions, I have a chat function. You can email me. And there's also some care guides and resources that are in the works on that page if you guys want to check it out. Um, I'm also reachable through Instagram and all my contacts are on there. And if anybody wants to uh, learn more about adoption or surrender or how the rehabilitation process works, um, I have that listed out on my website. And anybody can contact me from any state. Um, I do relays and fostering as well. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, listen, I want to thank Cloud for taking the time to come on and talk to us about this. And hey, look, you know what? There are times when things happen. We can't, you know, we can't keep our collection. We have to surrender a frog, whatever. And it's great that Cloud is out there putting in the effort to help people like that out. And look, you never know. It might come to a point where you have to part with your collection. You have to part with an individual frog. And, you know, like we discussed there really shouldn't be any shame in that. You know, there's, um, there's no, nothing wrong about asking questions. And if you reach a point where you just, you know, you can't, uh, you can't keep it, you know, it's always best for the animal to just find someone else who can. So 
Well, other than that, it's been a great conversation. Like I said, I want to thank Cloud out again. Go check out the website. And other than that, you know, we've got episode 100. It's coming up next. So I hope you guys stay tuned for that. And other than that, you know, have a great rest of the weekend. Catch up with you guys. Episode 100 coming soon.